Amen, indeed. Well, the title of our message this morning comes from that hymn we just sang, Tis Mercy All. We sang it twice. And the first time it was used, and, and you can see, I've uh, put the stanzas there on the screen for you. The first time it was used was as a bold declaration. All the earth is commanded to come and adore the work of the gospel. If we can pop one more slide over. All the earth is commanded to come and adore the work of the gospel. And I love this. It's, he's even chiding the angels a little bit. If you remember Peter, when he writes, he says that when it comes to the mystery of the gospel and what Christ is doing in us, even the angels are longing to look into these things and try to figure out what is going on here. And, and Wesley says, hey, hey, angels, you don't got to look around anymore. Here's the answer. It's mercy. It's mercy. Mercy from the bottom to the top, the foundation to the weather vane. And the second time that phrase is used in this hymn, it's deeply personal. The mercy of God is lauded for being so big, so expansive, but it reaches down from heaven and it singled out Chuck, Charles Wesley, and said, I will be merciful to you. It's not just a general mercy, but it's a specific mercy set upon specific people. And this song that Charles wrote to convey his own experience of God's grace in his life, it has so many echoes of what Paul is going to be speaking in our text to us about this morning. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. We'll be reading this morning verses 12 to 17, and as is our custom, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking again at verses 12 to 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to our passage this morning, recall where we're at in the flow of Paul's letter to Timothy. He's greeted him. He's made those introductions at the beginning. And he said, hey, Timothy, I know you want to come and hang out with me in Macedonia, but I told you you have to stay there in Ephesus. And the reason is because there's some turkeys on the loose. Right? There are men running throughout that church that are teaching false doctrine, and they're pulling people astray. And I need you to stay there and be that pillar of truth that will support the ministry of the gospel so that they don't get to come in and undo all that we have been building by God's grace there. 
He talked about these people as those whose lives are focused on all these myths and all these legends and uh, all these issues with the law, and they're trying to focus on all these things that in the broad scheme of things don't really matter. But it's interesting that here is where Paul just like can't help but throw in this biographical celebration of the gospel in his life. And I think it's because when Paul speaks of a preoccupation with the law and then lists, as he just did, all the scandalous sins that the law addresses, sins against what he says was the glorious gospel of the blessed God, he can't help but be reminded of a particular person. Out of all the self-righteous, hair-splitting, outrageously sinful people that Paul had interacted with in his travels around the ancient world, there was one that stood out for him above all the others. And that person, of course, was Paul himself. Verses 12 to 17 are this powerful, personal, parenthetical thought that Paul is putting in here He's warning about the false teachers there in Ephesus. He's going to get back to that again next week. But he just can't help but stop here. Against the backdrop of the seriousness of sin, Paul pauses to celebrate a God who is merciful to those very sinners. And there isn't a member of the true church of Jesus Christ anywhere in the world or across all the generations of the church, past, present, and future, who should not also join in with Paul in this celebration of mercy. And so let's do that this morning. Let us celebrate the mercy of God to Paul and to me and to you. And we first see in verses 12 through 17 a celebration of God's mercy to the sinner. Paul writes in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Paul begins by laying out there's a surprisingly good fortune that has befallen a surprisingly dreadful sinner. There's a, there's a contrast here that, that Paul is still blown away with. And he begins by saying, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He, he, he just has to launch right into this expression of gratitude. It's, it's also interesting the way he says, I th- thank Christ Jesus my Lord, gives us an indication that he's not just here talking about sort of this, this in the moment overwhelmed with, with what he's writing about outpouring of thanks. There's other places in, in Paul's letters he uses a bit of a different construction where it's like he's, he's writing or dictating and he just gets so caught up in what he's saying that he's like, I've just got to have a doxology here. We're just going to explode into some thanksgiving. And I think that that does actually happen at the end of our passage. But the construction he uses here, most likely he's saying, this is something I do every day in my regular time of prayer with God. It is my habit to be constantly thanking Jesus Christ, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful and put me into his service. And I love that he says there, our Lord, as he writes to Timothy, Paul is saying, I am thankful to Jesus, not just my Lord, but our Lord, the Lord we both share, the Lord we both serve, the one in whose service we have both been called. And he then goes on to say that this Lord has strengthened him. And that phrase, I think, would have been a particularly 
special for Paul, particularly meaningful for Paul. We want to, when we read the letters of Paul, we kind of get, you know, old Paul. We get Paul, the seasoned veteran, the seasoned missionary writer. Remember where this guy came from. Paul, the young man, Saul, was a very zealous and misguided young man. And he had made it his business to put his mark on the ancient world by persecuting Christians. These interlopers in the faith that were coming in with this new way and distracting people from the Old Testament and from the law. But you'll recall when he went up to Damascus with letters and instructions to find Christians there and bind them in chains and drag them down to Jerusalem for persecution, Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus shattered his entire world. The things that made Paul who he was broke. His self-righteousness was shattered when Jesus tells him, no, you're not a servant of God, you're persecuting me. His intellectual confidence as this brilliant mind in the law was shattered when he realized he had gotten the central message of the Bible about the Messiah completely wrong. Even his ethnic superiority as, as a Jew among Jews, as he would write later, was broken when God says, I want to call you to go proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. Jesus then cut Paul off from the outside world so he could think about all that for a bit. He blinded him. And in Acts 9.9, we find Paul sitting in a room in utter darkness for three days without eating or drinking. There has to be a lot on your mind to sit in one room without eating or drinking for three days. And you can just picture Paul hitting rock bottom, absolutely devastated. He's watching everything he'd ever trust in flow away. And in the, in the wake of that, he's watching all the things he had been missing start clicking together and coming back into place. A local believer named Ananias was sent by God. He was a little timid, like, God, do you know who Paul is? But he went, he was sent by God to Paul, and through his ministry, Paul's sight was restored. And this is what it says in the scriptures, that Paul's first steps as a believer were the instant he could see again. It says he stood up, he got baptized, then he got some food. Like it actually itemizes that. When Paul got up, he says, first things first. I need to make an indication that I have turned my back on everything that I used to trust in and I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And then I'm getting a little hungry. It goes on in chapter 9, verse 20 of Acts to say that he immediately, having gotten that food that strengthened his body, the scripture says, went to the synagogue and started spreading the word that Jesus was the Son of God. This was a man on a mission. I can see, it's time to stand up, that worked pretty well, it's time to get baptized. I'm going to get some food and I'm going to tell people Jesus is the Lord. The people were incredulous though. What was this Paul doing who had so recently been a vicious and sworn enemy of the message of Jesus? 
And that's when we read in Acts 9.22, but, Paul, or excuse me, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the first time in the life of Paul you see that specific word strengthened that he uses here in our text. When he began to first experience what it was like to minister, not out of the zeal of the flesh, not out of the strength of man, but the first time he began to experience what it was like to go into a room with a foolish message, with a scandalous message, and to watch the power of God strengthen him to be able to preach the gospel. Many years later, as an old man, having traveled the world and having preached that same message to Jews and Gentiles alike everywhere, Paul still felt nothing but gratitude for the God who continued to strengthen him in his ministry. God was the one, as Paul goes on to say, that considered him faithful and had demonstrated that by putting him into service. Well, that doesn't mean that Paul attributes the divine strengthening to his impressive qualities of faithfulness. Right? He's not saying, I'm just so thankful that God knew I was such a key player that he decided to invest his resources in me. That's not what he's saying. Because when God strengthened him, when God considered him faithful, when God put him into service, Paul hadn't demonstrated any of that yet. All he had demonstrated was that he could persecute Christians. This is kind of neat. Paul is thanking God for the grace to see in him those qualities which would be produced in him by the power of the Holy Spirit and by which he would be found a faithful and useful servant to God. Paul's not saying, I was so impressive, God had to use me. He's saying, I can't believe that when I was this kind of person, God could look at me and he could see what he could do with a person just like that. That he could see in me what he could produce by his own grace. Well, what kind of person like that is Paul talking about? Well, he tells us this is the kind of person God looked at and saw the potential by his power of making a faithful servant out of, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Blasphemer is one who speaks against the majesty of God. And this Paul did every time he denounced Jesus, the Son of God. And for one who would have been cautious even to pronounce the name of God, lest he use the Lord's name in vain, he looks back and can remember all the times he cursed Jesus, the Son of God, by name. And he was an actual persecutor. It was not just his words that Paul lashed out with. Jesus himself confronted Paul on his persecution back in Acts chapter 9, which we were just discussing. And Paul frequently reminded his readers of this sordid past throughout his ministry. He reminded those in Galatia that he was a persecutor of the church. He reminded those in Philippi that he was a persecutor of the church. He wrote to people in Corinth that he's a persecutor of the church. Here, writing to Timothy, he reminds them, do you know who I was? <laughs> right? It's like, uh, it's like Ananias, you know, do you know who Paul was? And Paul's like, yeah, do you know who I was? I was that guy, a persecutor of the church, and not just sort of like, you know, a bashful screen warrior, a violent aggressor, he says. We don't have the specific instance to point to that Paul's referring to here, but we know 
that Paul's violence towards the church came out in things like being the one who watched the coats of those who stoned Stephen. The one who went to Damascus to capture and bring Christians back in chains. Or as Paul writes in Galatians 1.13, the one who persecuted the church, and he says, without measure. When it came to his hatred against God's people, there were no limits. In short, Paul says he can't stop thanking Jesus that a guy like the first half of verse 13 could also be the kind of guy that God would use to write about it in a letter like 1 Timothy as an apostle of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Can we stop thanking God for that same unexpected reality in our lives? I mean, look at us. A body of believers that God has considered faithful and placed into service to him. What a bunch of amazing, all put together, goody two-shoes. Apologies if you spit your coffee out. Behold the church, a place brimming with those who have blasphemed, perhaps even persecuted, or been violent aggressors. Welcome to a church of liars, rebels, the proud, where a people who have consumed gross immorality as entertainment. We've worshipped the idols of sports, politics, leisure, financial security, perfect families, and more. We've coveted, we've defrauded, we've stolen, we've deceived. We've killed babies in the womb or pressured others to do so. We've given ourselves over to outbursts of anger verbally and physically. We've been fooled by our own hypocrisy and imagined ourselves more self-righteous than others. We've rejected our God-given identity and engaged in sinful lifestyles contrary to the word of God. We've broken promises, contracts, and marriage covenants. We've harbored bitterness in our hearts and devoured others with gossip and slander. And you know we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Look around. What are we doing here? How on earth are we not in hell? Is it a divine mistake? No, it's divine mercy. And that's what Paul turns to. Look with me, second half of verse 13. Yet, I was that guy. Yet, I was shown mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul begins by saying, how can a man of such sinful past enjoy such gracious favor with God? And he says, here's the answer. God's mercy, yet I was shown mercy. What words could bring more relief to the lips of any man than these? Mercy is one of those precious gospel words that we want to use with meaning. We want to use with precision. It lives alongside other words in scripture like compassion and loving kindness. But it's probably the nearest friend to the word grace. And there are a couple ways that grace and mercy work together, but in a distinct way. If we want to think about mercy, maybe this is helpful Sometimes when you see grace and mercy put together, it's emphasizing the positive and the negative expression of God's love. What do I mean by that? 
positively, God gives to us in his love a salvation with all its benefits that we could never deserve. This is grace. And negatively, God doesn't give to us the punishment for sin that we do deserve. This is mercy. Sometimes when you see grace and mercy together, it emphasizes the legal and the circumstantial brokenness of fallen man. God sees, in other words, a wretched sinner and is moved by his love to make that sinner not guilty. This is grace. Or God sees a wretched sinner and is moved by his love to make that wretch not wretched. That is mercy. This is something that when Paul looks at the work of God in his life, he loves to talk about the grace of God in justification, how God can declare a guilty sinner not guilty by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. But when he looks at himself, he also cannot help but say, what mercy, what compassion, what kindness that God would look at a wretched sinner as vile as me and say, I wish to make out of you something beautiful and whole again. When Paul rehearses his sin, he cannot believe that God would withhold divine wrath from him. When Paul remembers his wretchedness, he cannot believe that God would make out of his life a faithful servant of the Most High. And so he goes on to give two truths that explain how he could have received such mercy. And the first thing is he says, because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now I confess, the first time I read this verse, I went, that sounds like an excuse, Paul. Anybody ever had like your kids or somebody, they do something wrong, and they're like, well, I didn't mean it. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's not making an argument that ignorance somehow makes you unaccountable because he's just labeled himself as guilty. He's just declared his sin and his culpability for it. What Paul is doing here is indicating simply that he had not been guilty of the worst sin in the whole Bible. Do you know what the worst sin in the whole Bible is? And it's not the worst sin because it makes you more guilty than other sins, because all sin, as I think Ben even mentioned last week, makes us all equally guilty. God's law is God's law. And as James says, if you break it at any point, you're guilty of it all. It's not the worst sin because it makes you more guilty than other sins. It's the worst sin because it's the only sin that can keep you out of heaven. And that sin is the willing and knowing rejection of the truth about Jesus Christ. That is the only sin that can keep a man out of heaven. The willing and knowing rejection of the truth about Jesus Christ. Undertaking, as it were, to wage a voluntary war against God in order to extinguish that light of the Holy Spirit which has been offered to you. And now if you're one of my fellow Calvinists in the room and you're getting squirmy with all of this talk about knowing and willing and voluntary, take it easy. I took that definition from Calvin's commentary. So I'm being at least as Calvinist as Calvin was. This is what Jesus spoke about with the religious leaders when they recognized that the miracles of Jesus were being performed by the power of God and then they attributed them to Satan anyway just to discredit Jesus' ministry. 
And Jesus warned that such high-handed and malicious rejection of known truth was ultimately unpardonable, Matthew 12. This is what the author of Hebrews warned about when he said that there are some who have tasted of the Holy Spirit, become convinced of its truthfulness, and then fallen away and rejected. And he says that it is impossible to renew them to repentance again in Hebrews 6. What's the point? Paul recognized that the only sin that puts a person outside the pale of God's mercy is to truly and to truly know and believe that the mercy of God comes through Jesus Christ and then to maliciously reject that mercy if it's going to come on those terms. I firmly believe that the saving grace of God, when it begins its work on a man, will draw him to salvation 100% of the time according to the will of God. I also firmly believe there is nothing more dangerous to your soul than to be convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel and then to start looking for an excuse to reject it. Despite his great religious zeal that was running in the opposite direction it should have been, Paul had not rejected the gospel in the light of understanding. But this is all largely a footnote to the real reason and the one that Paul spends most of his words on that can account for the mercy he has received. And so he describes, secondly, the grace of our Lord that was more than abundant. This is the necessary and the sufficient reason for the mercy of God falling upon Paul, the sinner. The grace of Jesus, which was made available to us through his death on the cross in our place, is the most potent spiritual reality in the whole realm of divine justice. And Paul emphasizes that point by using one of his trademark compound words, super duper abundant. It's a word that could refer to a vessel that just was overflowing because you had filled it up with way too much. It couldn't hold it all. And it's a comparative. It's saying way more super duper abundant than something else. And what is that something else? Something else is the sum total of all our sin. Though our sins be as numerous as the grains of sand on a seashore, when the tide of divine grace comes in, there will never be enough to hold back that ocean. And once that grace has laid hold of us, it will come with two unmistakable companions. And you can mark this. When the grace of God lays hold of a man or a woman, it comes with two unmistakable companions. The fruit of God's saving grace bestowed on us in Christ is faith and love. Do you see that? Faith and love. Faith here, the trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. It is the door through which we enter into the new life of a Christian. This is the gift that comes to us by the grace of God. It is not what we must conjure up in ourselves in order to access the grace of God. It itself is a gift. And it comes with, secondly, love. Love is the new reality in which we now live. A love for God demonstrated in keeping his commandments. A love for fellow believers 
demonstrated in service and family affection, a love for our neighbors and the world demonstrated in kindness, sincerity, and the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus said, that is the single attribute that defines my people more than any other. When God's grace through his mercy comes to a person, it comes in the form of faith by which we come into our standing in Christ and love by which we live in Christ. And this was Paul's great celebration. A violent, blasphemous persecutor was now a man marked by faith and love and faithful service to God. The abundant life in Christ. And I have to ask this morning, do we not have we received this mercy? Have you received this mercy? It's been noted many times before, and it is often the case that when the claims of the Bible are impressed on our conscience as true, when we first begin to realize the historical reality of who Jesus was and what he did, the truthfulness of the claims of the gospel, when that begins to prick our conscience, we tend to react in one of two directions. Either we think so much of God's justice that we cannot imagine him showing mercy to a sinner like me. Maybe Jesus died for Mr. Goody Two-Shoes down at the end of the pew. Because he looks like somebody that you could love. There's no way Jesus suffered on the cross for someone like me with what I have thought, with what I have said, with what I have done. And the second problem we can face is that we think so little of the justice of God that we cannot imagine we would need mercy. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't murdered anybody that I cared about. When I get to heaven, if there is a heaven, I'm sure he'll let me in. Why wouldn't he? I have lots of friends. Do not let these miscalculations keep you from the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. When Christ died on the cross, he died for sin. And if you think that the divine didn't know in detail how disgusting, petty, common that sin was when he chose to die, then we've underestimated the godness of God. That's humbling. Jesus didn't die for the version of you you present on Sunday. He died for the version of you you're hoping nobody ever sees. And that's all of us. There is nobody, not one of us, who will stand before God one day and be able to look him in the eye and say, you should let, I, let me in, I'm a pretty good guy. Won't happen. God's mercy is a gift available to us in Christ if we will have the faith to believe he died even for me and if we will have the humility to admit he needed to die for me. And so like Paul, receive the mercy of God and celebrate the mercy of God. For those who have received mercy, it can be tempting to want to forget the sins of our life outside of Christ and the sins during our life in Christ. There's no point in digging up the past, right? Like, I know I was a sinner and we got that sorted, but now can we just pretend like that never happened? 
This was probably the part of the passage that struck me the most as I studied it this week. Because I think that's intuitively how I feel. I like to get away from icky things. I don't even like to watch movies with sad, sad endings anymore. I just don't want to feel bad. Bad things happen, let's just be done and move on. That's a small view of what God is doing. I want us to take a look at what Paul says next here, because he not only celebrated God's mercy to a sinner, he celebrated and he put a spotlight on God's mercy through a sinner. Look with me at that in verses 15 to 16, celebrating God's mercy through the sinner. In verse 15, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. This is Paul warming up for a big principle, a big lesson. It's a trustworthy statement is a phrase he uses five times in his letters, including here. He says it again in this letter about aspiring to the office and the work of an overseer. He says it again when he talks about disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness at the end of the book. He says it when he talks about the faithfulness of God to us in salvation, despite our fainting hearts in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. And then he again speaks of the mercy of God to us in salvation in Titus 3, 5 to 8. As Paul writes here to Timothy and Titus, his two pastor friends, right? As he writes to these guys, he's like, hey, pay attention. This is going to be on the quiz, right? This is a trustworthy statement. Write it down. These are the important foundational principles for the life of the church. But there is no more foundational principle than the nature of the gospel. And so he says here in his first trustworthy statement, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the broad part of Paul's trustworthy statement. He's going to have a very specific narrow part in a second, but he starts with this broad truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sometimes when you, when you listen to the way that Christians talk about the gospel and you look at the books we're writing and you look at the social media campaigns that we're producing and things like that, I feel like the gospel is being treated like one of those viral social media life hack videos. You know, like the ones that show like a drill or a hair dryer or a kitchen appliance being used to do all sorts of cool things except for what it was designed to do. You've not seen these, right? Like, look, I have a, a drill and a popsicle stick and a soup can and you can make a cheese grater. Those videos. Maybe they only show them to nerds like me. <laughs> there are a lot of implications from the reality of Jesus coming into this world. Yes, he will bring justice. Yes, he will heal the socioeconomic, ethnic, geopolitical, and national strife in our world. He will one day end poverty and oppression and all the bad laws, policies, institutions, and systems that are part of the problem. He will wipe away our tears. He will make us happy. He will end our anxieties. He'll heal all our wounds, physical and otherwise. He will fill our lives with rich abundance. He will restore perfect biodiversity and make sure the climate is just right. And give us all luxury condos in one giant beautiful city. But none of these things are the reason Jesus came into the world. None of them. This is the reason Jesus came. And this is the answer we need to give the world every time they ask. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. That's simple. All the gospel is contained in that. Christ, the Messiah. 
You cannot utter that word without already establishing a worldview that is inescapable, that there is a God who is the creator and there is man who is his creation and that that man has fallen out of a right relationship with that God such that he is incapable of restoring his relationship to God and needs a Messiah. Jesus, that Messiah was not an idea or a force. It was a man born fully God, fully human as one who would be able to be our substitute for sin. And he came into this world as a historical matter of record. The reality of the life and the death of Jesus, his perfect righteousness, his substitutionary death, his burial, his resurrection. This is what he actually did. It's not just a myth or a legend that inspires us. It's truth. And he did that to save sinners. The purpose for his sacrifice was not to give an example of kindness and love that we should show to other people. It was so that God could look at guilty sinners and say, not guilty because it's been paid for. That's why he came. We must not be embarrassed of the word sinner. Our culture recoils from it. We shouldn't be surprised. We recoil from it. Like, we're okay if sinners aimed that way. But as soon as we realize sinner aims this way, we don't like that word either. We must never be ashamed of the word sinner, lest we diminish the work of our Savior. That's the broad call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice how Paul immediately narrows it down to his personal testimony. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul's gospel was not a message of mercy for those people, you know, the ones that obviously need it. Paul's gospel was the good news every sinner needed to hear, and Paul most of all. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. And yes, it's an expression of piety. Yes, it's an expression of humility where he recognizes, though there were nobody else on the world, I am, as the man who prayed before God in Jesus' parable, I am the sinner. But I want to say that it's more than just that. I don't think Paul is just being a humble brag here. I think this is an expression for Paul of a simple fact. I'm a royal sinner. I'm a public, violent, heartless sinner. God chose somebody whose sin was egregious and widely known. Why? So that that egregious sinner could become a tool of the mercy of God to reach out to others in sin. Look at verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. One of Paul's favorite logical arguments that he uses throughout his books is the argument from the greater to the lesser. If that bridge can hold up a semi-truck, it can hold up your bicycle. As Paul wrestled with the painful memories of what he had done to so many Christian men, women, and children in his past, he came to this realization. One of the reasons that God had shown mercy to such a sinner as Paul is that God could then, through the transformation of Paul, demonstrate his ability in mercy to transform anyone, no matter how vile. If God didn't strike a blasphemous persecutor like Paul down, then maybe, just maybe, 
God could be merciful to a sinner like me too. Brothers and sisters, this is a difficult but precious part of our gospel witness. We don't need to hide in our lives what God has chosen to make him look glorious. The world needs to see a great savior and not mistakenly assume when it looks at us that it has seen a perfect people. When we are willing to be honest about what God has done in our lives and who we are apart from him, that makes much of him and gives hope to others. As a pastor, you'd be surprised how many people I've heard say, church sounds nice, but it couldn't be for people like me. Growing up in a church, I would hear that, and I'm like, yeah, people don't really say that. They really do. They really think that. They really walk into a room like this, and they look around, and they say, oh, this place is not a place that would understand the kind of broken I am. That's sad. We're not trying to glorify sin. There's a kind of like, hey, let me tell you just how many drugs I did. No. Look at the example of the life of Paul. Without aggrandizing or making a spectacle of his sin, he was able to simply state the facts. This is who I was. And now let me tell you about a great Savior who can reach a person like that. And we also don't want to be a church that prides itself because we remained in sin. Right? People should walk in and they should see a people that are looking different. They should see people in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ and growing holiness in us as we are sanctified. But that shouldn't be an artificial appearance, a hypocritical veneer over our real lives. We should be authentically and sincerely who we are to the glory of God as a testimony of his mercy. All of us have sinful pasts. And for some, those pasts are particularly painful. And if that's you, I hope you in particular see this text as a unique joy that brings a heavy dose of relief. Do not let shame and guilt over what Jesus has forgiven tie your heart in knots. Like Paul, face your past from the perspective of your Savior. In your circumstances, no matter what they are, Jesus has demonstrated his perfect patience. If you were foremost in your sin, then you are now foremost an example for those who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. We don't need every group and every meeting in our church to be a place where we just take turns dumping out all our deepest, darkest secrets. That's not what I'm talking about. But let us not shy away from the opportunities to show others the full extent of just how far the mercy of God is willing to go and has gone in bringing sinners like me into his family. As the music team comes up, I again invite you to look around. All the sinners here who by God's grace and mercy have received faith and love in Christ Jesus, what trophies we are. What testimonies. What proofs. What eternally grateful evidences of the mercy of God. It stirs the heart, does it not? It sure did for Paul. 
that's why he couldn't hold it in any longer. And he had to stick a little doxology there on the end, celebrating the God of mercy and sincerity. Look at verse 17. Now to the king, the one who rules us all, eternal, literally the king of the ages, the king now, and no matter what president comes next, no matter what epic comes next, always, who cannot die, the immortal one, invisible, he's not like you or me, he's a spirit. What does God look like? He doesn't look like a thing. Why? Because he's not a thing. The only God, hearkening back to the language of the Old Testament where God told his people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Be the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you know what? Because the mercies of God never cease, this verse actually will come true. Because for all eternity, we, the recipients of his mercy, will be there to stand before him, to ascribe him honor, and to ascribe him glory, and honor, and glory, and honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. I can think of no better words to land the sermon than the one that you're about to preach to each other in song. And so would you stand and let us declare our gratitude to a merciful God, and we will be dismissed.